3: Hello and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan, and this is the 10th step on this interstellar musical expedition. If it's your first time listening to 33, welcome. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for being fans, thanks for tuning in. On this episode, like every episode of 33, we're going to have a world premiere of a song from the album Autumn. This time, the song is titled Hooray! As always, we're going to be breaking down the story, the lyrics, the melody of the song with Smashing Pumpkins frontman, Billy Corgan. We're also diving into classic tracks from the Billy Corgan catalog. On this episode, we're listening to and analyzing French movie theme, which was recorded during the Siamese Dream Sessions. Our guest on today's episode of 33 is actor, comedian, musician, writer Charles Fleischer, best known as the voice of Roger Rabbit from the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Charles has had an amazing career starting in the early 1970s and continues to this day. I'm Joe Galley, one of your hosts with 33, and joining us on this journey is my friend and broadcast partner, Kyle Davis. And for the first time, Kyle, we're actually in the same room recording at the same time.
4: And it has been a logistical nightmare, but we're making it work. Hey, but you don't need to know that. You just need to make sure to use the hashtag WPC33, spell it out on social media as we want to hear from you. Otherwise, existential crisis sets in, and I don't know if I exist Go over to WPC33.com to continue the conversation where you will find show-related playlists, lyrics of today's songs, and more on the influences that make Billy Corgan music you love. Like, subscribe, share, review, all of this. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your kids, tell your pets as we lead up to Autumn's ultimate release. WPC, you're about to perform the last dates of the Smashing Pumpkin Spirits on Fire Tour in California and Arizona before the big finish at the Hollywood Bowl. We got the National Wrestling Alliance still growing and evolving, and still you're finding the time to chat with us. What's the story, Morning Glory? Well,
5: I seem to have caught some kind of flu on top of the cold that I was getting over, or the cold turned into a flu. So I'm in sort of outer space, which dovetails nicely into today's episode. So happy that my friend Charles Fleischer is on. Uh, Charles is an interstellar journeyer himself. If you've ever gotten the chance to check out Charles live as a comedian, and of course he's been in a zillion films from uh, Back to the Future 2 on down, Look up his resume. It's quite impressive. I remember seeing Charles on television as a child, probably around age 10 or 11. I believe he was one of the characters on Welcome Back, Cotter. That shows you how far back I go with Charles, at least in the consciousness. Today's song, uh, Hooray, is uh, one of my favorite songs on the record. I believe when Nikhail heard this song, he got a little uh, iggy, as we would say, um, to listen to this before today's podcast. He said, Well, I wasn't expecting that. So we'll, we'll just leave that as some kind of foreshadowing. But in terms of the story, Of course, Osiris and Nighthawk have fled the X and I with their lives, and they're barreling down the road. They get rid of their phones because they put them in some sort of Faraday cage because they know they're being tracked. They're scared for their lives, and all they know is they want to figure out what's in this magical box that June has left behind. So somewhere along the side of the road in the middle of the night, they pull over and they find a very strange data port, which is antiquated. Nighthawk, being astute, figures out that there's probably only a few places currently on Earth, because it's old technology, that could actually host this data port. And so they settle on an amusement park called Dream Dream, which they both uh, grew up going to, now Shuttered. And they know that some of the robots in uh, Dream Dream are capable of hosting this technology because all that really is in there besides some clippings and some old CDs, uh, let's call it the general ephemera of Shiny's life, is this data port, which is obviously at the center of what they're being pursued for. And they figure whatever's on this data port or a hard drive To use the parlance of the kids is certainly something dangerous because it almost just costs them their lives. So they figure if they can figure out what's on the hard drive, that might be the difference between them living and dying. So they make their way to Dream Dream as they wander around an abandoned amusement park. So if you want to imagine sort of a Disneyland, Universal Studios type park, but it's been closed down for 20 years, the weeds are growing, the rides are creaking, it's night, there's no lights. And uh, they're trying to figure out where the robots are that were part of the show pavilion, dancing robots. And they're discovered by the night watchman, who rather than throw them out or call the police, uh, takes kindly to them and leads them over to the pavilion. He puts on all the lights, flicks it on, and uh, you get the sense, uh, at least you do in the audio portion on the box set, which you'll hopefully hear someday, you certainly get the sense that the night watchman has done this before, and maybe this is his way of stemming loneliness in the middle of the dark night, watching an amusement park by himself, albeit shuddered. Ruby, the lead robot, who's kind of a 1930s Corrine chorus girl, voiced in 1970s Patois, or Patina, does her signature song, Hooray. Is there a part of you that had an
4: experience at an amusement
5: park? Because that felt
4: like it was a very deep dive into that portion of it right there.
5: Well, I certainly remember going to amusement parks as a kid. I went to Disneyland circa 1974, and I can't quite place the memory exactly, but I certainly remember being fascinated by what Disney called animatronics. Basically, human-like figures. He mostly used hydraulics in the old 60s technology. Um, And there's a famous story when he previewed Abe Lincoln at the New York World's Fair in 1964 that Abe's oil started leaking out of his head. Um, And it caused quite a stir. So you might want to look that one up. But it's the idea that, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you watch a human form act human, you do have a human-like response. It does engender empathy or anger. And I remember having those experiences as a kid. So I guess I'm relying on that. So imagine these kids, they've come to this amusement park, in hopes of figuring out what the information that they possess is, they know they need a a robot like Ruby to access the information because she has the data ports that will host this particular kind of, you know, thumb drive type thing. But the first thing Night Watchman wants to do is show off and let the kids see an old-fashioned, you know, robotic show. So imagine Ruby's in great shape. It's left to the imagination why she's in great shape. But all the other robots are kind of creaky, falling apart. The clothes are falling off. So it's a bit of kind of spooky I'd also refer to Casanova, the movie by Fellini, which I hadn't seen and was recommended by a good friend of mine, Charlotte kemp Mule, M-U-H-L, who plays in the band Uni, and, and she told me to watch this movie. I'd never watched this movie, and there's a beautiful scene in it where Casanova is so out of options as a lover that he takes up with a dancing robot. So there's some sort of referential stuff in there. I've always been very comfortable with sort of referencing things that inspire me. I'd rather spend my time getting into the cracks of why I'm interested in it than worrying about somebody goes, well, you took that from a particular movie. It doesn't matter to me where I got these ideas from. What matters is, does it engender a a particular response from the audience? And do they care about what I'm after? Which generally speaking is not what it seems to be after. And that's very much pumpkin's land for you. Circuit 2022 and back.
3: And I think it's so interesting you make these connections that people are going to have. You know, you have this audience and, you know, a lot of times when I'm listening to these tracks from Autumn, I try to put myself in the position where I'm in like a a nice Broadway-style theater and it opens up and kind of, I kind of watch it through my mind's eye through that. And that just made this scene with Ruby and all these robots and all these different things, just the, the concept of being able to see that as a stage play kind of popped out and made this track very, very interesting to me and then what you could do and how you could show all these different parts to this thing. So I just think of like just taking a moment and trying to ingest this medium in a way and try to imagine the world that it's in. Like that's, that's how I kind of see it.
5: Well, rock bands have struggled through the years. There was a behind the scenes or behind the music VH1 about sticks and how it almost broke the band up or basically did break the band up because Dennis Young, the most notable lead singer of Sticks, a band from the Chicago area, pushed on this concept in, of course, the famous song, Mr. Roboto, Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. And they talk about it sort of like winking and like kind of groaning because Dennis made them, at least I'm going by the documentary. I don't know if this is true. Dennis made them say lines as part of the musical. So you see them on stage, like awkwardly speaking, the microphone's like, you are the robot. My thought would always be that if we ever stage this, the musicians on stage would play the soundtrack, but true actors or a visual representation of acting would demonstrate. So the character of Ruby might be voiced by a, a professional voice actor or um, a professional uh, singer musician but, you know, Ruby as a dancer, Ruby as a performer, or at least how Ruby would appear on screen, would be, you know, someone who is a professional at that. It's not to create an awkward environment. It's to take advantage of the medium around something like this and see if we can explore and sort of chart new territory because as i've said many times i mean there's this kind of redundant narrative that goes on and it started when i was making the record well i even to referred to the fact that the band members didn't even necessarily love the idea of course our former record label didn't love the idea which created a whole different business dynamic And now, of course, here come the kind of the critical class that sort of shrug their shoulders and say, I'm not sure this is even valuable. Like, what is valuable about doing this? And in fact, an interview came out with me just today that I saw from The Guardian in the UK, where the gentleman interviewing me seems to suggest that I'm not even that attracted or interested in the narrative myself, which I think he just misunderstood me. I don't think he was doing it on purpose, but I wouldn't be doing 33 podcasts. I wouldn't be putting out 33 songs. I wouldn't be calling it a rock opera. I mean, the minute you call something a rock opera, you know, somebody's going to throw a stone at you, but that's the whole point. The Pumpkins has always been that band because in the eighties, when we first started and we had all these people putting these things on us, we kept saying, what are all these rules? Like these unspoken rules, like this is a good mustache. This is a bad mustache. This is a good t-shirt. This is a bad t-shirt. And we kept thinking, who cares? Isn't rock and roll supposed to be about freedom? And you've seen over 34 years, for better or for worse, where the pumpkins is charted against the headwinds of that sort of cultural expectation of like, you can do this, you can't do this, you can say that, you definitely can't say that. Where over and over, we we just created energy where there was no energy. And look no further than the fact that we were able to merge UK kind of uh, alternative pop slash shoegaze with heavy metal music out of the 70s or even back to the 60s. I mean, no one, but nobody thought that would work, but somehow we thought it would work and maybe we were just skilled. And so we like to take credit for inventing something that's not as valuable as the fact that we were really skilled at doing it. It's like saying, I'm, I, did the, I brought back a silent movie and somebody's like, no, you just did a really good job of bringing back a silent movie. Nobody wants to watch a silent movie anymore. So that's an argument I don't mind having. But when you get into like, is it worth doing? Or uh, he's out there selling this thing and even he doesn't seem to care. That's absolutely not true. So if anybody sees that interview, it was a fine interview, but if anybody sees that, that totally flies in the face of what I'm doing here. I mean, I, I literally telling you, I got the flu. You can hear my voice is shredded and I'm on here with my compatriots in the NWA because I want to share and, and I put my effort into this. So it seems to me a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you make a 33-song record, a rock opera, you add 10 extra songs to the box set to make 43 songs and you go out of your way to do a podcast to explain the concept to friends and the like, I think it's self-evident that I give a... And, uh, you know, whether we bleep that or not, I don't really care. I care and I'm not ashamed to care. And that's always been part of the hipster argument. You can't care too much. Don't care too much because it's not cool. Okay. Well, a lot of those hipster bands that we ran upside alongside of back in the day, they're long gone. So that's all you need to know about my opinions on that.
3: You know, it's interesting that you talk about this and we're at episode 10. This is track 10. And, you know, you got 33 songs here. So we're nearing the end of sort of act one of the story structure of this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as we, we kind of get into the transition here and we can take a listen to Hooray in a little bit? Sure. Well, in
5: terms of traditional structure, you know, you have to build some dynamic momentum. So I think you quite nicely addressed the idea that you have this kind of stage musical type of moment where they walk in, the guy flips on the lights and boom, now uh, there's a dancing robot. I think that would be really fun to stage and it certainly would bring the energy up in whatever room we would be performing in. So that's how I look at it. But there's one more little kernel to come that involves the robot, but we'll save that for next week's podcast.
3: I think that's a great place to leave it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, it'll be world premiere of the track Hooray. You're listening to 33 with William Patrick Corgan. We'll be right back.
4: Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzu's.com, the autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by The Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine-numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is autumn, and ten exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA, three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st,
6: 2023.
5: Welcome back to 33 Friends. This is William Patrick Corgan. I'm ailing, I'm hobbling, I'm barely sitting upright. I have some sort of weird mystical fever. It's been an interesting tour. In terms of the music and the shows, we've never been happier. And so thank you if you've come to this tour and thank you if you're coming. Physically, it has been demanding and uh, to do it in this particular season as all these viruses and the like fly around has been certainly challenging. But I'm here because I love music and I love sharing with you. So please sit back and listen to Ruby's signature song, the Robot on the Fly, The Thirties, Kareem, The Spangled Lady. Hooray!
2: Out on the plane, some chickamau. Skipped it lock Was flowered out on the I Alone in knowledge Of life's big college It's time.
3: Welcome back to 33, ladies and gentlemen. You just listened to the world premiere of Hooray! How exciting was that track? That just filled, me, it just filled me with a bunch of happiness. And to fill everyone else with a bunch of happiness, we've got Charles Fleischer is joining the podcast. Charles, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be part of your pod or in your cast of
5: casts. Charles, we've known each other about 25 years. Is that accurate? At least that. Or, or a couple lifetimes. <laughs> See, either were. Either Six lifetimes.
7: And Babylonia, Babylon.
5: Now, as my good friend and as a kind of, uh, I was going to say idiot savant, but I was going to go savant. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take anything that has savant in it. I wanted to bring you on because I wanted to talk about AI and robotics. Um, the song that we just heard is based on the idea that the characters in this uh, running story come across a robot that they need to translate a particular message. That's the narrative part, but we'll get off that for a second. But I want to kind of get your general gist on where we're going with AI and robotics at this point. I mean, we go back to Asimov about 70 years ago, or maybe even longer, sort of positing this future that we're now in, which is a little bit more benign, which was always his point. It wasn't as flashy as the movies made it out to be a little bit more benign, but I want your take. Previous to
7: Asimov, you got uh, Carol Capick, you know that uh, playwright who wrote uh, Rossum's Universal Robots? That was the first use of the word. But artificial intelligence, I think, is named incorrectly. Uh, just the name "artificial." Do you use when, at your restaurant? You don't serve anything artificial, right? Of course not. Not that I'm aware of. No, definitely not. There's no artificial flowers in your house. Artificial basically means fake. Fake intelligence. I think that's uh, that's the problem. It has to be change the name, and things will be all right.
5: So, what would you change the name to?
7: Uh smart stuff. <laughs> Smart machine, maybe computational uh, information intelligence, or maybe we'll be smarter than you if you're not careful.
5: Would you be comfortable with having a robot in your home doing a lot of things, uh, tasks, and things like that?
7: Uh, it would depend on the model number. The R six ten Wallog is definitely I wouldn't have it, but the the new uh, Escalon six, you can't tell the difference. In fact, that's the that's the real future is. Uh, you know, or we're just kind of meat
5: robots. Oh, interesting. Would you be comfortable making love to a robot?
7: Once again, it depends on the model number. You know, the old ones, definitely not. But
5: some of the new ones, the new ginger is unbelievable. Can't tell the difference. From the Gilligan's Island series. I'm a big fan of where this is going. That's, that's the voice of Kyle, i.e. the voice of God that just dropped in from out of nowhere. I think, yeah, the, the the voice of Kyle says he loves the sex robot. Kyle, Kyle recently had a vasectomy, which he talked about publicly. So that maybe that.
3: Yeah. So why have sex with a robot, us? Kyle? You're already shooting blanks. It doesn't well, seem like it makes a lot of sense. Well, it's not
4: that. I mean, let's face it. Sometimes you want you don't want to be selfish, but you feel like you might be and you might be upsetting your partner. But maybe the robot wouldn't care about you being a selfish lover. But then you have to think about the fact that if they're advanced, are they going to get to the point where they do care that you're being a selfish lover? It opens up a whole just door of chaos. Are you going to say can of transistors?
7: Well, would you rather have a, a human that acts robotic or a robot that acts human?
4: I, uh, I'm going to play the fifth right now because of my relationship. The
7: fifth is no longer acceptable in robotic
6: world. You're going plead zip zap. We are not.
5: Well, with a voice like that, I'm let's, let's get this thing back on the rails. This is an rails. adult. This is an adult show for children. Um, You know, there's some talk about, uh, let's call it robot ethics, where whether robots would have uh, basically rights a la human rights. Um, There's some talk about that, whether robots will be recognized as uh, personages. Do you have any thoughts on that, Charles?
7: Yeah. Well, once again, it depends on which pathway it takes. But if it gets to a certain level, you know, they'll demand their own rights. You know, it's like they are, it's how close they get to being like us.
5: And that's the goal, obviously. Wouldn't you argue they're probably already there and we just don't know about it?
7: Well, that's another possibility. Those uh, that Boston robotics company with little dogs and and hitting with and jumping on the stuff. I mean, and, uh, you know, Moore's Law, I think, states that every year things double as far as the processing ability. So and the uh, that Black Mirror had a really good episode about a robotic dog that kind of chased people down. And it's just a matter of uh, of time. You know, how long will it be before they get to where they appear as we do? Then that's going to be a situation.
5: Well, I think we're probably already at a point where we're dealing with AI systems that are making a lot of decisions for us. I mean, Facebook and that type of stuff has come out and basically said if you look for a certain kind of content, they're going to sort of feed you more of that. So. We're already kind of tipped into that. The fact that it doesn't necessarily have a human form, I think is less important than the consciousness at the other end of it. And there has been a recent talk about how are they put computer systems together to communicate and within you know a day or a week, they basically change the coding of their language and, and the humans can't follow what they're talking about and they start to have an internal language. There was a famous book from the 60s about that. I can't remember it at the time. Do you remember that book? Where the, the computers of Russia and the computers of the United States sort of talk to keep us out of war. And then at some point they flip the script and then the humans can no longer control because the computers decide to wipe everybody out and they're trying to kind of pull it all back.
7: No, it's... Uh, but
5: like the novel... Colossus. Walkers. I think it's called Colossus something. So I should have done my research here, but something Colossus.
7: Stanislav Slim or something?
5: No, that's... that's uh, You're thinking of Alita. Oh,
7: Alita. Yeah, I remember uh, Eliza was one of the first AI programs that you could just download and and talk to it, and it would talk back. And that was kind of exciting. But, um, you know, it's uh, then I once had this uh, story about somebody that has a a psychiatrist they talk to and gets a lot of help from, but then they find out that it's it's, uh, an AI. It's not even a, a real person. But does it matter? It's like, what is the end product? If the robot or the AI is more efficient than the
5: human, then what's your problem? Yeah, I think it was about five or seven years chatbots came online where people, particularly with uh, mental health issues, could reach out to a chatbot. They knew it was a chatbot and basically have a kind of a self-affirming conversation. And just the act of someone listening, even knowing it wasn't someone, was psychologically uh, positive.
7: It goes back to that previous paradigm, would you rather have a human that really doesn't listen to you or just ignores you or puts everything you say into a little box or uh, an AI that's very attentive and and gets to the root of it. Ah, there's um, this old program where you can uh, just
5: ask 20 questions and it'll tell you what you're thinking about. Oh, interesting. I think I would rather have a Kyle that listens as opposed to a Kyle that doesn't listen. I think that's what you're getting at here. I'm. If I'm feeling your flow. Yeah,
7: it's like, uh, but then it's uh, what if the, the AIs start giving bad advice? For example? Well, if they say, you should go out and kill yourself. I always listen to my AI. Somebody gets into it and, and gives them the wrong suggestions, like, you're approaching this incorrectly. Do not eat breakfast with a fork.
5: Well, we've all had that moment with the GPS where the GPS keeps telling us to turn left, even though we've already decided to go straight, right?
7: Yeah, I've had had it send me all over the place. I have uh, My GPS, I have uh, David Bowie's voice, just
4: recalculating, recalculating. I think we've really touched on a a basic premise here that if if humankind is going to help create AI, that it's going to have the exact same faults as us. Be it well-intended or not, it could go in a certain kind of area there where we're not getting what we want from it anymore. What's your take on that
7: yeah it's it's uh, the folly of of human nature but that also leads to a new discovery a lot of great ideas came out of accidents I'm not saying a microwave is a great idea I don't personally use them but that was they found out that it could be used to cook because somebody had some chocolate in there and it melted it so
5: I don't know what sound that is but it's beautiful
7: that, little that was my robot at the door
5: I had Robot or robot? Well, I was an accident, so I'll take that thread to heart. Um, So (laughs) let's get off the robotics for a second because we've had our fun with it. Um, As you know, because I approached you about this project a good good many moons ago, I told you what I was doing and we talked about some things. Because you're a person I trust in terms of uh, opinion vis-a-vis art. So already this narrative is being formed, you know, as they always are between, uh, is it relevant that, uh, that a band in their fifties is releasing all this music? You know, there's one side of the argument. The other side is, well, more is more. Why is it bad in the digital age? Who cares if you don't click on it? It doesn't exist anyway. Um, what's your sort of perspective on, let's call it the, there's so much available art. I mean, you can go back and look at, you know, tapestries from the 1500s if you want and just sit on Google all day. What's your perspective on the creation of modern work against the cynicism that is all sort of washed out in our, in our current culture, And unless it sort of reaches the zeitgeist, which very few things do, and most of them that do reach the zeitgeist are pretty poor, if you ask me. Uh, do you have kind of a general take on that?
7: Well, I, I go back to the creator of, of the work. I mean, uh, if the creator is uh, some Salvador Dali or you or someone who, has a genuine genius soul, then bring it on. But, you know, another album from, you know, do may not be the best, but put it all out there. It's eventually uh, bring it on. I, you know, I like uh,
5: great art should always be produced by great artists. That's sort of my perspective. It's sort of like, um, and I don't mean this in a glib way, but like, what does it matter, right? If you have complete autonomy of choice with what you want to look at vis-a-vis your phone or your laptop. What does it matter that more art exists in some quadrant listened or unlistened to? I certainly, if I was a young artist, I wouldn't want somebody to make the argument against me producing new art because there's just already too much. So the idea that at some point I'm, I'm less valuable in the, in the zeitgeist that makes no sense to my either, because of course, if I actually figured out the zeitgeist, they would tell me how amazing it was. I'd figured out the zeitgeist and put the key in the keyhole.
7: Yeah. Well, you know, for restaurant. How many? How big is the menu? You know, the cheesecake Factory. Their menu is really big, but I don't think people are complaining about it. They want. Oh, we want more. I mean, I think the more time goes by, the more choices will be there. And the problem may or may not be finding something that that you will appeal to you because there's so many choices. You know, which uh, what do you eat if the menu is 150 pages long?
5: Last question. Um we're obviously on an accelerating path. I think you brought up, is it Moore's Law? The idea that, okay, now the crickets are here. <laughs> That's your phone, by the way. The crickets. Mine? I Mine. believe so. You don't have crickets? No, no crickets. I didn't even hear anything. Over I think it's at our hotel.
3: Else? We got a hotel. We, we're, we're, you know, we're in the bayou right now, recording from uh, New Orleans. So ah. some, uh, some wildlife well, you know, Bye.
5: Think, uh, Bye. You. And the original bayou. Pinocchio,
7: I think that Jiminy Cricket, with the, they killed Jiminy Cricket stepped on him but he's back yeah well he's he's back back, but he has yeah they don't have six legs i mean a real cricket they should have
3: they should have six legs and they shouldn't have top hats or sing but that's disney who's to say don't don't make cricket choices for crates jiminy cricket my favorite uh my mother's favorite disney character
5: that says a lot about uh everything Really. You know. All right. As I like to say, we're going to bomb out of this segment before we bomb completely. Charles, you're a gifted orator. I love you dearly. Uh, give us give us something to, to to think about as we as we go to break. We should think about
7: things that we can't think about. That will enable us to create new thoughts. If we limit our thoughts to things that are already there,
5: then we'll never find a place with special air. Beautiful. When we come back
6: Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
3: Welcome back to 33, ladies and gentlemen. We just heard French movie theme. I think it's the only song of the Smashing Pumpkins that only has two words in it, Billy. Is that right? I don't
4: know. You <laughs>
3: set me up <laughs> to a question I can't
4: answer. Yeah, 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 yeah,
5: yeah. And bonjour. Yeah. Bonjour. Would you like the backstory of the song? You want to just uh, absolutely just ruminate on French? No, no, I of course. So we used to play this uh, song in rehearsal during the making of uh, Siamese Dream writing sessions back there in the... Dusky Garage in Chicago on the northwest side, I guess, along the lake. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't. On the north side by the lake. And uh, we had the song. We thought it was funny. We never took it seriously. And so when we went to record it, um, I said it reminded me of a French movie theme. And I was referring to other famous songs like uh, A Man and a Woman and I think uh, Music to Watch Girls By, which is Mike Curb, if you want to look that one up. You know, kind of a breezy 60s fun type of thing. And so we put it out, you know, I think we probably worked on it for about three hours. It wasn't a massive endeavor. And I really like this era of the band where we had a lot of fun. Our recording sessions weren't just serious, like the stuff we talked about with Butch. There was a lot of kind of fun stuff that we did because we saw it as part of who we were to have fun just as much as be serious and rock out. So um, there's a little story attached to this song, which is one of my favorite stories. And it dovetails into the worst interview we ever did, which is hard to believe because we've had a lot of bad interviews. So there was a famous DJ whose name will remain unnamed. Uh, but last I looked him up, he was a candidate for the uh, Radio Hall of Fame. So this is not an insignificant uh, DJ. And you can imagine if you're working in Chicago, uh, you're definitely, uh, you have some skills. And I was a huge fan of this particular DJ, more of a talk talk DJ. Um, and so I was a big fan. And so when I found out that we were invited in to be interviewed by him, I took Jimmy Chamberlain along with me. And so we get let in by the assistant. Hey, welcome. So glad you guys are here. And we walk into the studio and the DJ is behind glass, probably 40 feet away from us. I'm not saying we're like on the other side of the glass and he's just on the other side of the glass in the studio like you would be with certain famous other DJs. He's behind glass and then we're 40 feet away. So he's really small. We can barely see him. And they put us on a microphone. And so we're thinking, okay, this is a bit weird, but okay, whatever. So he comes back from break. He starts playing the song, French movie theme. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. It makes a little sense. He's kind of funny DJ. He was a guy known for doing voices, much like Charles Fleischer. And uh, so we, he comes off the song, and he asks us like two questions about the song. And we're like, uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah, we were just having a bit of fun, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, thanks a lot. See you guys later. And then we were escorted out. <laughs> and by this point, we were uh, like a double platinum... <laughs> You know, we weren't like some baby band. We were like huge. We were on MTV all the time. So we were like, what? What do you mean that's the interview? Oh, that's all he wanted to ask you about. And I was like, shouldn't somebody told us that before? Well, he's obsessed with that song. Goodbye. And they just literally showed us out the door. Uh, So
4: So this is some guy's obsession. That's an interesting song to pick is like, that's my jam.
5: Well, if you want to be uh, negative about it, he saw our only value in this kind of comedy thing that we had done. He thought there was no other value in us because— Obviously, he would, and we're from Chicago. This is in Chicago. So, us on the air, ten minutes talking about whatever. I mean, we we've certainly done plenty of interviews through the years where the DJs just want to joke about whatever the Cubs or something. Our only value to this guy was for this stupid song, and so that's the old uh, classic thing of uh, "be careful what you wish for" and no good deed goes unpunished. And so, uh, I've never met the DJ ever since. I certainly let it be known through back channels that, that I would never talk to him again. Uh, I certainly wish him well. I, I was I was a fan before I was humiliated on the air by him. And as a young buck, you know, making my way up through the, you know, the rock and roll charts, I was certainly offended by his behavior.
3: Well, I think that when you have people in that upper echelon that get that huge platform through terrestrial radio, it really opens the door for what we're doing right now with a podcast where, you know, we have an unlimited amount of time where we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. And there is no gatekeeper and people can have access to that. And we could go back into what we're talking about with artificial intelligence and people having the access to being able to find that sort of content. But at the very least, at this moment, you know, we could talk about whatever we want to talk about for as long as we want to talk about it. And it's not just, let me ask you this one dumb question and have you out the door. And that's all that 200,000 people are going to hear in Chicago. This is, goes worldwide. And that's where we are with the technology that we're at now, which will someday lead into the technology of the story that we're seeing in autumn.
5: I think that's a beautiful setup to talk about a few things, Joe. So thank you for that. First of all, how valuable is the French movie theme to the Over? If that's the right pronunciation, uh, the, you know, the song catalog of the Smashing Pumpkins. Well, probably not that important. But to us, it was valuable because it was a way of saying this is who we are. Now, in the modern world, if somebody comes along and puts it in a movie and pays us a bunch of money, you'd say, "Oh, that was some genius that you guys had there on a Tuesday afternoon." doing this silly song. And we have had songs licensed that you would think would never be licensed. Uh, We Only Come Out at Night, being a perfect example, licensed by Apple for a significant sum of money, as you could imagine, for being on a national Apple commercial. So in a million years, I never would have imagined a song like We Only Come Out at Night would be valuable. I always find it a weird thing when people wanted to find for the band, and I am talking about the band here. I'm not speaking for the band. I'm talking about the band at that time. We thought these things were valuable because it was an expression of who we were. We didn't like playing the game that we were only valuable if we were making alt rock hits. And that wasn't even a word back then. So, um, whether it was a bullet train to Osaka, you know, or these types of fun songs that we used to do, you know, it was a way of saying, hey, you know, we're not taking this that seriously because people always seem to take us more seriously than we did. People would say, oh, you guys are so serious and you're so dark and say, I'm in a band called The Smashing Pumpkins. Like, what, what do you, it's in the name that, I, that we're joking around. Additionally, you know, you get into the gatekeeper class about what is a band, right? Like, what does a band have a right to say and be and do? And we've had crazy experiences where we were just basically told, hey, you know, the speck on your face is all that I care about. And then you flip around to 20, 30 years later, you know, we're up on stage every night in front of tens of thousands of people playing. We only come out at night and the crowd singing along. So obviously it has some value, but I don't think value is easily assigned in the moment. And it even does feed into the idea of AI and robotics because as we switch from human endeavor to robotic endeavor, and that's already happening. I mean, most of our cars are made by robots. That's no sort of big secret. That's been going on for 30 years. As we switch over to a robotic AI economy, the fast food chains are already doing it. Do we really know what we're going to lose until we do it for 40, 50, 60 years? And then we look back and go, oh my God, we really messed up a lot of things that were really valuable including uh, maybe people just going into a McDonald's and having a conversation with the kid behind the counter. Maybe that conversation was just as important for the guy going in or the lady going in versus the kid behind the counter who learns how to socialize and work a job that they can feel proud of. And if they go on to be a, you know, a big executive or a, or a musician. I mean, we've all heard those stories. In fact, uh, Mike Byrne, who played drums for the Pumpkins when Jimmy was out of the band, literally was working at McDonald's when I hired him to join the Smashing Pumpkins. He was 19 years old working at McDonald's. You know what his parents made him do after I hired him? They made him finish out his two weeks, because they didn't think it was right for him to just jump out of the job, so knowing he was being hired by the Smashkin Pumpkins, he spent two weeks finishing up his McDonald's job. But I thought that was kind of cool in a weird kind of way. I, I respected his parents for sort of putting that on him because they were saying these are our values and this is what's important to us. And I'm certainly not one to question what a family thinks is valuable in their own family unit. As far as sort of like obviously we were having a little bit of fun with Charles. Charles is a is a masterful comedian actor, and you know I'm sure we talk about before uh, you know uh, what Charles has done. I know we did, in fact. Uh, sorry, just a little sick here on this tour. My brain is not all there. You know, the reason I wanted Charles on is because on some level, and we brought up Asimov, Asimov took credit for coining the word robot, but according to Charles, somebody else did. I have I have to look that up, but Asimov always claimed credit for making up the word robot sometime in the 1930s or 40s. But Asimov talked about the idea that, you know, uh robot run amok was the most boring version of the robot story. You know what I mean? Like, Somebody builds a robot and the robot kills everybody. He thought that was the most boring form of the robot story. Most Asimov stories focus on the idea of the gray space between human desire, endeavor, laziness, and what a robot can bring to the table, good and bad. Whether it's companionship or production of food in a part of the world where maybe people wouldn't be able to eat otherwise. So he kind of gets in that gray space, which is what I like about Asimov's writings about robots. And there's a book, there's a companion called, I think, The Complete Robot Companion or something like that, that includes all of Asimov's robot stories. So I would highly recommend that if anybody's a reader out there.
3: I think, you know, when we're talking about the way that everything's advancing, I mean, I just don't know how much longer it's going to be until kids will go to a classroom and there isn't a physical teacher there. Perhaps there's going to be that, you know, that AI presence that's going to be there to do, especially for. You would think like kids, elementary school, that sort of thing to have just, if you're going to learn very basic things, you could have some sort of computer process, but then how far does it go and to what point do you need to have a human connection in order to have a good education as a child? And then it kind of snowballs into what more can be done. And if you keep going into like, well, what about parenting and things like that? And we talk about companionship, but think about how important that is as a child. But at the same point. At a certain point, do we get AI that has the potential to traumatize a child or to make mistakes with children? And how do we regulate that? And how do we keep an eye on that?
5: We won't have that data for a while and that's where it gets complicated. So for example, um, we're coming out of a pandemic where a lot of kids were learning remotely at home. While the early indications are is that was a terrible decision. Let's let's skip the health part, whether teachers want to be in classrooms with sneezing kids and all that. Let's just skip that. Just the strict effort of trying to get kids to learn through an iPad you know, overall, based on everything I've seen, has been a complete disaster. They're basically already predicting that that generation, let's call it between the ages of four and eight or 10, is going to be really, really under the under a cloud, uh, for lack of a better analogy, because they didn't just get the kind of the hands-on thing that you need, because uh, at least my memories, although they're, they're distant, about being in school, was just as much about my social re- relationship with my teacher, whether my teacher approved of my logic, Um, grades were probably less important to me than whether or not the teacher approved of me as a person or, or recognized my intelligence or my way of crafting an argument. Um, And then of course, I've talked about those things where teachers in the converse said things to me that were very damaging to my future as an artist. Well, we've lost Joe and Kyle. They've disappeared now. So I'm by myself. So I'm going to assume that uh, you'll still hear me. I'm kind of scared. I've never been a host on my own. Actually, I probably need a robot host. That's probably what this is all about. But uh, what I was going to go into in this uh, particular instance was the idea that um, let's say somebody could empirically prove that a child learned better with a new way of using technology. The teacher was going to talk to them, and based on AI technology or something, 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 a teacher who is very effective in this medium would be able to teach a thousand students at a time. But each student would feel they were talking to the teacher personally. I'm not sure how that would work, but just play along with this particular game. Whether or not that would be good overall for a young student say, between the ages of four and 10, I don't think we would know that for 20 years until they grew up and they were either, you know, going crazy or they were productive. And you say, oh, that class that was this test case class that, that was using that AI technology, you know, and maybe even the, the teacher personality to be reactive to each student is an AI teacher, but the teacher looks real and is like a deep fake type of teacher. It's the idealized teacher. Maybe into the point where the, the child looks and sees uh, someone that looks like their parents or their uncle or there's a certain kind of kinship that's established because they've done a personality profile, and then the, the AI program figures out who would be the ideal teacher for the student. So somebody makes this case, hey, for $3 million, we can teach tens of thousands of students, and their test scores are going to be better, and this is way better. They'll spend less time in quote-unquote school. Um, we'll create, because we think we sh- the kids should come out of home and should have some level of socialization. Maybe they go to teaching pods in their local communities and we'll set these up very cheaply as long as we have good Wi-Fi. How how would we know, even if the kids' scores immediately went up, and even if you could point and say, this is beneficial to kids who traditionally would have poor test scores within traditional Western scholastic circles, how do we know there wouldn't be some other horrible effect on their socialization, their own personality development? That's a really, really uh, big chasm to jump across, but I think we're almost kind of there, and I guess that's why I'm sort of ringing a little bit of alarm bell. Not as chicken little, but more kind of like, you see where we're hurtling forth on a lot of issues socially, uh, politically, uh, particularly in America, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of desire to kind of slow things down and really have a good review. So when robots do come online, and uh, Elon Musk has talked openly about his interest in in robotics, and including uh, neural implants and stuff like this, allowing a human being to basically become a kind of cyborg, we're going to be there any minute now. If I said, hey, I have a crystal ball and it's going to be 12 years, you may find out that actually, no, it's... uh, it's going to be a lot longer than that. Uh, meaning, uh, how can I put it? Even if I could tell you 12 years, we're going to be in line, and everybody's going to have robots, it's going to be affordable. You can go down to uh, Best Buy and buy your robot for an economical price, and you know the robot's going to clean up after the dog, and da-da-da, or even keep the dog from going on the floor. I got a puppy, right? Like I'm dealing with this kind of stuff. How do we know the social impact of that if we just fly into it without sort of any test cases? And that's sort of where I am ringing an alarm bell. Kyle and Joe have forever disappeared, so I'm just going to say goodbye. I don't know what happens next. Maybe I'm in my own virtual world now. And you're just sharing it with me. But thank you for joining me and Kyle and Joe, wherever they are, on the 33 podcast. Talk to you soon.
6: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.